When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Matt D'Elia is Confused. My guest this episode is a man named Eben Alexander, Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Eben Alexander is a neurosurgeon by trade, but he's not just any regular neurosurgeon. He is a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience. And it changed the course of his life from being a surgeon to someone who brings word of the meaning of his experience to the world. And in doing so, has had great success and has really sort of brought a lot of attention to this idea of near-death experiences and questioning what consciousness is in the first place. I was really excited to talk to him. I'd heard quite a bit about near-death experiences. I was fascinated, and I asked him about this, I was very fascinated by the similarity um, that a lot of testimonials bear uh, with one another. Um, A lot of near-death experiences mirror others who have experienced the same thing. And you know, there's sort of some commonality between people who use mind-altering drugs, psilocybin, things like this. And so there's a lot of interest in this possibility of another realm, so to speak. Um, And Dr. Alexander seemed to be the right person to talk to about it, considering his um, background in science. You know, I mean, before any of this happened, he was, as he goes on to say in the episode, um, what he calls a material scientist. Um, And obviously, needless to say, the near-death experience that he had set him on a different path. And before um, I play you this conversation with Dr. Alexander, I want to sort of give you a sense of what his NDE was his near death experience there's there's a there's a post on his website actually um so i don't get accused of plagiarizing that I, that i'm going to read to you that sort of succinctly breaks down his actual literal experience of his nde Began in a primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm, the earthworm's eye view, or EEV, from which I was rescued by a slowly spinning clear white light associated with a musical melody that served as a portal up into rich and ultra-real realms. 
The Gateway Valley was filled with many earth-like spiritual features. Vibrant and dynamic plant life with flowers and buds blossoming richly and no signs of death or decay. Waterfalls into sparkling crystal pools, thousands of beings dancing below with great joy and festivity, all fueled by swooping golden orbs in the sky above. Angelic choirs emanating chants and anthems that thundered through my awareness, and a lovely girl on a butterfly wing who proved months later to be central to my understanding of the reality of the experience. The chants and hymns thundering down from those angelic choirs provided yet another portal to higher realms, eventually ushering my awareness into the core. An unending inky blackness filled to overflowing with the infinite healing power of the all-loving deity at the source, many, whom many might label as God or Allah, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh. The names get in the way, and the conflicting details of orthodox religion obscure the reality of such an infinitely loving and creative source. So we get into some of that <laughs> specifically, um, but, but, but I wanted to give you guys a sense of what his literal experience was of this, in this altered state. Because uh, the conversation is a bit more esoteric, perhaps scientific, uh, on that spectrum at least. Um, and, uh, you know, I try not to ask, ask my guests anything that my listeners could just Google and if you want to know more about his literal experience of his NDE, go ahead and Google it. Um, but that's the gist, and that's all I got. Uh, this conversation was super interesting. I don't even know, honestly, what I think. This is a rare case of like I thought I knew what I thought, and after talking to Dr. Alexander, now I really – I'm just actually more confused. I was confused. I thought talking to him would clear things up, but now it's like my mind is sort of cracked open in a way. Many thanks to Dr. Alexander for that. But you know, I, 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 was, I, I was and still am skeptical of the idea that there is this other realm full of lovingness and whatever, God, whatever. But you know, I, I do not and would not ever – you know, uh, dispute the fact that he did have this experience. Um, but yeah, this is our conversation about NDEs. Uh, and yeah, enjoy it. This is me talking to Dr. Eben Alexander. Okay. I think it's important to point out that uh, I, uh, at age 54, had uh, basically been a materialist uh, neuroscientist. I was a neurosurgeon. I was teaching at Harvard Medical School, where I'd been for uh, 15 years. Um, I thought I had understand some understanding of brain, mind, and consciousness and how it all worked. Um, and then, very suddenly, on the morning of uh, November 10th, 2008, I developed severe back pain, severe headache grand mal seizures, uh, and then went into coma. I was 
my family called 911 and the EMTs came and uh, took me off to Lynchburg General Hospital emergency room, a place where I had worked as a neurosurgeon. So a lot of people knew me there, although uh, my physician who admitted me to the ER, who knew me well, didn't even recognize me. That's how wrecked I was by these seizures and by this meningitis. It was trying to kill me very actively. Um, and in fact, uh, she was the one who did a lumbar puncture uh, and soon found out that it was a gram-negative bacterial meningitis. That's really the worst kind of meningitis you can have. Um, and then uh, put me on the ventilator on three powerful intravenous antibiotics up on the medical ICU. And that's where I languished for seven days, uh, at the end of which time my doctors were so distressed over the lack of progress uh, and, and also this very unusual situation that I had such a devastating illness um, that normally when you have somebody who goes into coma in a few hours from uh, bacterial meningitis like that, by day two or three, they're either starting to wake up or they're dead. Mm. And I, I was still in this in-between state where I was alive, although my neurologic function was drifting towards nil. It had been uh, you know, very poor all week. Uh, my brain was very seriously incapacitated with this infection. They knew from CT and MRI scans that all eight lobes of my brain were affected. No part of the neocortex escaped it. In fact, my neurologic exam showed that my brain stem was pretty heavily impacted even on day one. Um, the reason it's all a gift is that this clinical picture is one of somebody who should not have survived. Uh, at best, by the end of that week, they thought I'd gone from a 10% chance of survival down to a 2% chance of survival, but they associated no prospect for full recovery uh, with that 2%. So if I survived it, uh, they predicted I would just be put in a nursing home for months where I would ultimately succumb to the disease. So this is a real shocker. Of, first of all, that I lived through it, although that was a 2% probability, so not a miracle. Mm. Uh, but then the recovery over the next two months was truly shocking. And we tell a lot of that story uh, in our second book, Living in a Mindful Universe, mm. or my third book, actually. But it's the second one in sequel to Proof of Heaven. Uh, but we talk there about, for example, how um, my physicians invited me to a county medical society meeting where in front of 150 fellow doctors, including many who were taking care of me, um, I shared my journey. And they were all fascinated by this mm. because many of them had lived through it with me. Uh, now, the, the key thing is that such an experience, especially the documented damage to my neocortex, should have gotten rid of all but the most rudimentary little forms of conscious awareness. And yet the exact opposite is what I experienced. I had... Uh, it all began in what I call the earthworm eye view, a very primitive course, uh, unresponsive realm. Uh, it was like being in dirty jello. I have strawberries of, of kind of roots or blood vessels that were, I had a tactile sensation of this. And uh, it was, uh, the thing is, I, I had no memories of my life before. It's mm. one of the atypical features of my NDE is that I was amnesic for the life of Evan Alexander. And in fact, I had none of my religious beliefs, none of my language uh, none of my scientific knowledge, none of it survived to go into the coma with me. Uh, and, of course, in the early months when I came back to this world, uh, as my knowledge of neuroscience was returning to me over those two months, uh, I, I thought in a very simplistic fashion that it made sense, given the documented damage to my neocortex, that my memories would be so deleted. Mm. But the shocker was by two months out, 
they were back. And not only were they back, but in fact, based on conversations I had with close family and friends uh, after, long after my coma, compared to the similar conversations before coma, I came to realize that the memories were more complete after the coma. It was the most stunning example wow. of the fact that memories are not actually stored in the physical brain. Mm. Uh, and that's something we talk about in our book, Living in Mindful Universe. I have a, an appendix dedicated to it, and in one of the chapters we discuss pretty fully how um, uh, you know, the memories do not seem to be physically stored in the brain. And, of course, something else that we discuss in a lot of detail in that third book uh, is something that was shown to me in my journey. It was very clear, although I didn't realize how much scientific evidence is there to back it all up. Mm. And that is the scientific study of reincarnation. Uh, any, any of your listeners can go to uvadops.org. That's University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, uvadops.org. And you'll find out a tremendous amount about that because uh, at UVA, scientists, there have studied uh, all manner of non-local consciousness, including reincarnation stories, for more than uh, 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, in the reincarnation literature, they've contributed something like 2,500 cases of past life memories in children where the best explanation is one of, of actual reincarnation. So it's obviously a huge body of scientific data. Um, and once you start reading it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and where it leads is even more astonishing. But uh, obviously, memories are not stored in the brain if uh, we reincarnate and come in with some of the memories from mm. a previous life that guide the things that happen in this lifetime. So right. uh, I would say that modern neuroscience of consciousness, philosophy of mind, uh, and quantum physics, which is deeply, deeply wrapped up in this whole question of the brain-mind relationship, uh, they're all helping to take us to a whole new level. And this emerging of science of consciousness uh, is going to be very extraordinary. It's going to help bring this world together because it shows the oneness of mind that we all share uh, and the fact that our sense of separation is an illusion that's not really true. That telepathy is real, uh, precognition is real, psychokinesis, uh, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing. Uh, you know, all of this points to a much bigger consciousness than the simple denial and debunking that comes from some materialist scientists who really just don't have the evidence or, or it looks like the powers of rational inquiry to even entertain this much bigger notion of, of mind. Mm -hmm. um, but it really is the way that the science is headed, and that is what will take this world to the next level. Wow. there's I mean, there's so much there that I want to get into. I, I feel like to start with, though, perhaps... I want to, I'm curious as to, I heard you, I've heard you talk a little bit about before any of this happened, your, the NDE uh -huh. that you've described, you describe in such detail in your book, which we can also get into the details in a bit. Were you someone who, if someone like you came to them and described their story, what, how would you have received that information? And, and, and I'm curious as to your journey from before being such a man entrenched in science and what you might call materialist science, right? Huh? Well, the reality is the, 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 um, the evidence is all around us, and mm. it's rock solid. You, but you do have to study it. You know, in our lives, we, we form a worldview based on our personal experience, and that includes knowledge that we gain from listening to others, reading, watching talks, conversations, what have you. Um, those are our modes of understanding things. And so, of course, 
Um, a lot of people say, well, I've never had a near-death experience, so I don't have a personal experience to support this. Mm. But that's where I would strongly urge people to get into the world of, of uh, centering prayer and meditation, going within. I, it was something I finally came face-to-face with about two years after my coma, mm. was if I had any hope of more deeply understanding um, what had happened to me in that coma journey, which was very extraordinary. And many scientists around the world respect the incredible, extraordinary nature of it and, and the implications of it. Um, and uh, it, it turns out, though, that the, the seeds are really all around us for anyone who cares to do the homework. Uh, and a good starting point is that living in a mindful universe. But there are a number of books that have come out uh, recently that help to crack the eggshell and point us in the right direction. Uh, some of the others I will point out to people, uh, The End of Upside-Down Thinking by Mark Gober, uh, an excellent book that really uh, shows uh, the power of this revolution in understanding of, of the nature of consciousness. Um, there's another beautiful book, uh, Spiritual Science by Steve Taylor from Leeds University. Um, uh, that just recently came out. Uh, there are a number of others, but uh, I think Living in a Mindful Universe, Mark Gober's book, uh, Steve Taylor's book, these all go a long way. And all of them uh, also have a discussion about the relevance of, of quantum physics. But I think that's where it gets especially deep uh, and especially powerful, mm. the consilience, that is the agreement in conclusion that comes not just from the neuroscience of consciousness when, when faced with a hard problem of consciousness, which is really a hard problem for materialist science. Mm-hmm. It's a hard problem for materialists because there's no way you can explain consciousness based on a purely materialistic outlook. And that's one of the real travesties of it. And it's the reason why uh, scientific materialism actually died about 80 years ago. Mm. Uh, but a lot of people haven't read the memo yet. And that includes some quantum physicists who are still perfectly happy with infinite parallel universes, the many worlds interpretation mm-hmm. of Hugh Everett from 1957, to explain the measurement paradox in quantum physics, where the modern evidence, and certainly um, when you add in uh, uh, the neuroscience of consciousness and philosophy of mind, and the tremendous evidence being presented from the world of parapsychology, you start to realize that that materialist model is hopelessly lost, and in fact uh, died years ago, and yet uh, some people still promote it as if it has any relevance to a modern understanding in in this world of uh, advanced consciousness studies, and it really doesn't. Uh, So this is really about the tremendous revolution in consciousness. And it was clear to me that you'll never answer the question about an afterlife Mm. from near-death experiences alone because, of course, those people don't die. They come close. Some of them have been dead for days uh, and then come back to life, but the reality is they don't go on to die. So to fully get this uh, vision of the afterlife, we need to explain and look at all phenomena of consciousness. Uh, And especially also, I would urge people to acknowledge that the world of transpersonal psychology, uh, based on the work of brilliant uh, clinical investigators like Dr. Stan Groff, uh, Dr. Michael uh, Newton, Dr. Brian Weiss, and others, uh, transpersonal psychology uh, now has benefited, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of patients through acknowledging that the issues you face in this lifetime uh, are deeply set up and related to issues that uh, you faced in, in previous lifetimes. And this is all a process of a soul journey over multiple incarnations. And the science behind this is getting stronger and stronger. So 
and another big problem, I would say, is we live in the age of the specialist. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, before my coma, I thought, well, the guys with the big answer would be the physicists. In fact, as a college freshman, I was interested in going into astrophysics because I thought that was the ultimate science. But then, of course, I got attracted to medicine because I really wanted to help people. Uh, and that's why I went to neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. But I've always had this background interest in physics. But the thing that's important to acknowledge is that in the world of physics, you find that there are gaps as we get to the edges where things don't make sense. And that's why uh, in the modern physics community, to explain the findings of measurement paradox in quantum physics and contextuality, which is the fact that the mind of the observer has tremendous influence on what is finally observed. Um, You know, this is really about uh, uh, expanding that knowledge field and talking about what is common to all of it. And that's why you need to know a lot about not just neuroscience and consciousness and parapsychology and philosophy of mind, but also quantum physics, because that is the most fundamental presentation of kind of the uh, physical and mental realms and how they overlap. And uh, all of it adds to a very uh, exciting prospect for where this world is headed. It's true that uh, as specialization, as, 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 Things become more specialized. I feel like the generalist has sort of gone away a bit. And to synthesize so many things, I feel like a lot of these branches of science and study are not getting to the end, but hitting a wall in a way. And a lot of them don't exactly fit together. And I think now we're starting to see people attempt to synthesize these things into one larger view. And I'm I'm very curious. That's exactly right. I'm very curious. That has been the big problem. (laughs) Right, yeah, and I'm curious as to um, your interpretation. You you brought up many worlds, but I want to before we get into that, I want to I want to start. I want to talk a little bit about as you come out of your coma and <clears throat> excuse me, as you come out of your coma and you said the you said earlier that the memory of what had happened was immediately in your mind, right? And that's even as you're starting to gather basically gather your brain back. Is that right? I mean, the memories were potent, even though you couldn't possibly express them. They were, they were extremely potent and and very vibrant and alive and uh, kind of ultra real. I mean, it's really shocking. This world seems more like a dream than that Mm -hmm. world. Um, and, and yet the interesting thing was all of my memories for Evan Alexander's life before had been deleted during that entire process. And I only, uh, discern later that that was uh, actually a crucial ingredient to help me uh, understand the lessons from my journey. But, um, you know, it, it, it was so stunning that uh, my mother, my sons, my uh, um, uh, my sisters standing at the bedside, I had no idea who these beings were mm. when I was first coming back to alertness in that ICU bed. Uh, all I knew was where I had just been. And in fact, I went through this crazy phase. I talk about it in the book, Proof of Heaven, uh, for about 36 hours after I woke up from coma and after they extubated me, where I was kind of in and out of, uh, of kind of being there in the ICU room and starting to remember people, starting to interact. My language was coming back very rapidly. But then I would drift into this kind of paranoid, delusional, psychotic nightmare that was really crazy mm. and at the time was vivid. Uh, and, and seemed quite real, but it was nothing like the intense ultra reality of the deep spiritual journey from deep inside coma. 
And even though I bundled all of that together because my doctors told me, and remember, as I'm waking up, I know nothing of neuroscience, brain, mind, and consciousness. Mm -hmm. All of that has been deleted. It's going to be weeks and even two, up to two months before all that comes back. But my doctors would pat me on the back as I tried to tell these stories, and they'd say, you were very, very sick. Your brain was soaking in pus. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have no idea how you, you even come back to this level of uh, communication. But forget about it. The dying brain does all kinds of tricks. And right. That's what happened. So initially, I believed my doctors. I thought, wow, that was crazy. As I told my son, Evan IV, who was majoring in neuroscience at the time in college, I told him it was way too real to be real. Mm -hmm. To me, that meant it had to be a massive hallucination. Mm -hmm. But remember, I had I I still didn't have any of my knowledge of neocortex and all that. That was to come back to me over ensuing weeks and months. Mm -hmm. um, all I knew was my doctors were telling me it had to be a hallucination. It was shocking to me. But the interesting thing is the difference between those sets of memories, because uh, I had never read near-death experiences before, the literature. I wanted to dive into it, but my older son, the one majoring in neuroscience, said, no, 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 write everything down you can remember about your experience before you read anybody else's report. It's the greatest advice I've ever received. I wrote about 20,000 words and basically, um, you know, as best as words can convey, because there's so much of that aspect of reality that is far beyond our language for any kind of description. But uh, I wrote it all down. But the interesting thing is I thought that all those memories would fade away in similar fashion because I was still kind of thinking in my mind as my own worst skeptic that they had to be a massive hallucination. Right. And yet uh, what happened was those deep coma memories uh, of the spiritual journey, of the earthworm eye view, and then all the beauty of the Gateway Valley and that lovely guardian angel, all the earth-like features of all the many butterflies and the lush plant life, and then the swooping angelic fires above that provided yet another portal to higher and higher levels, seeing all of space and time collapsing down, then all of deep time and ordering in that spiritual realm collapsing down, all the way out to the core, to that infinite inky blackness, filled to overflowing with the infinitely healing love of the divine creative force of the universe, um, and, and then cycling through those realms multiple times, very vivid memories. Those memories did not go away. Mm. They stayed sharp, crisp, and clear. In fact, uh, even now, those memories are so uh, brisk uh, and so alive that it's almost like the whole thing happened yesterday. Mm. And yet those other memories of the 36 hours after I was excavated, when I was kind of in yeah. and out, kind of a madness, uh, uh, hallucinating and just uh, crazy out of my mind, my brain trying to write itself, those memories faded within a few weeks. Right, yeah. I'm glad I wrote everything down because <laughs> otherwise there would be no memory of that at all. Right. So it points out a very fundamental difference about conscious memory, uh, or the experience of consciousness, and memory of events uh, that's occurring in a realm that is not dependent on this physical brain. Uh, and that, in fact, our brain is more of a filter, a reducing valve that allows access to experience and to uh, memory of experience. Um, but it's not the creator of it at all. And that's where I think uh, the modern science is expanding our notions of reality tremendously. Right. And you're, I mean, it's interesting that you had, you had that advice was clearly good that your son gave you because it, it turned out, it, it turned out that a lot of what you did experience is what people who other people who have experienced NDEs 
also experience. Is that right? That is very true. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, as I've come to read, you know, hundreds and then thousands of these reports and not only read them, but have, you know, many, many people, hundreds of people at my uh, talks. I've given more than 500 uh, talks on this, uh, you know, and uh, the reality is lots of people come up and share their stories. And to me, that's one of the biggest gifts of all that is that people trust me. And they'll often come up to me and say, well, I never told anybody this before, but. Mm. And then they'll share something that might have happened to them 50 years earlier that they still say is such a strong experience that they remember it as if it just happened. Uh, and, and it's hearing more and more of those stories. And many of these people have never even heard of near-death experiences. Hmm. They just show up because this sounds interesting and it reminds them of something they know deep down. Uh, and that's why they show up. But the more and more I encounter other people and read about this and then go through the writings of scientists who have studied these things for decades, the more I realize, yes, there's very common ground. And uh, in fact, it's astonishing that so many different ways of bringing us close to death you know, head injury, mm. uh, parachuting injury, plane crashes, fires, drowning, uh, fights of violence and battle, what have you. Why is it that there are still so many commonalities of the story at the edge there, right? When people have left this world and left their body and are on that journey, um, you know, to the spiritual realm, as I would call it. Uh, why is it there's so many similarities? And yet you do find that there are always the difference. Uh, and the differences are there because these are meant to be for the individual soul on their journey of discovery. Mm. Uh, they're not really tailored for the world at large. They're tailored for the individual. But by putting them all together, that's where we start to get uh, a tremendous view on the real workings of this universe and realize that the material is thinking, that the physical is all that exists, that things like thoughts, emotions, dreams, um, you know, feelings, that there's no reality to them other than uh, as the result of molecules and atoms and cells interacting in the physical world, it, it's just false. Uh, there is so much more to all this, and we need to expand our theater of operations to even begin to understand something as profound and fundamental in the universe as conscious awareness itself. I'm curious. I mean, I'm sure you've read some stories. I've actually never done anything like this, but I've, I've read and seen testimonials about people who take sort of mind altering drugs and then end up having a similar experience. Do right. you find that to, to be sort of like on a parallel path with it? Or is that any, any, anywhere between that and like coincidence or what's your take on that? Yeah. I would say there's a lot of overlap between our, our mind and this normal waking consciousness our mind as it experiences the dream world, our mind as it experiences near-death experience, um, and our mind as it experiences the psychedelic drugs. Um, mm -hmm. Now, very important point, though, um, and this is something we talk about in detail in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, from my point of view, the psychedelic drugs uh, really create way too much of a splash and allow far too shallow an entry uh, into that spiritual realm. Hmm. Um, and th that's why we firmly recommend using differential frequency sound, brain entrainment. Hmm. And, and the very specific form that I use is one that was created by my life partner and by the co-author of that book, Living in Mind for the Universe, Karen Newell. And for those who want to learn more about it, they can go to sacredacoustics.com 
and she has some uh, a lot of free videos there that are very instructional. Uh, and she has a free 20-minute OM file. I would just encourage people to listen with headphones. The reason is the power behind that kind of uh, differential frequency sound and its ability to liberate consciousness comes from separating the channels to the two ears. Uh, mm. And it turns out what we're doing with that kind of uh, methodology uh, is where, whereas most of the sounds you've ever heard, and this includes all the chants and anthems and hymns and all the music and uh, that people have used to get into transcendental states of consciousness in a spiritual or religious setting, uh, all those sounds are processed up in the neocortex and the acoustic cortex, um, which is right up here and it evolved in the last one to 10 million years in terms of the main circuitry there. Um, but that's very different from the sounds of sacred acoustics and others that provide what are called binaural beats. And mm. from my point of view, sacred acoustics is the most powerful form of binaural beats I've ever experienced. And what they're doing there is using slight differences in the frequency of the sounds going to the two ears, say a half a hertz or a one hertz mm. or five hertz, um, you know, six hertz, 12 hertz, what have you. Uh, that frequency difference is what will drive uh, kind of the, uh, the main signal coming up from the lower brainstem. So it's the fact that those sounds, sacred acoustics, are actually influencing a circuit that arose more than um, 300 million years ago, as opposed to these very recent circuits that right. we're used to with the interpretation of sound, vibration, and frequency. When you step down and go to that much more primitive circuit, uh, it exposes a, a principle in modern evolutionary biology that if you want to get at the heart of a function and understand it better, you go back in the evolutionary tree and kind of look at its anatomy and function um, that uh, you know emerged through the evolutionary chain of uh, you know of Darwinian evolution on this planet, and uh, that's where those differential frequency sounds are having an effect. They actually that circuit arose before animals even had visual systems mm. because. It still works to localize sound. So if I hear a finger snap behind my head, that circuit is what calculates the arrival time of sound going at 1,000 feet per second. It hits my eardrums at slightly different times. Mm -hmm. And that circuit measures that arrival time. And it turns out that that circuit is also part of a very powerful modulating influence from the lower brainstem of, of signals coming up 40 times per second to give us a now signal in the thalamocortical loops that link the neocortex with deeper gray structure. All of that is modulated from deep down. That's the circuit that we're influencing. Uh, and this is why I believe people can actually go a lot further mm. with sound than they can with the psychedelic drugs. The psychedelic drugs are having an influence in your neocortex, and they're altering consciousness in such a way that they're opening the veil and allowing you to glimpse mm. a little bit of that realm beyond, the same realms that we glimpse uh, in the dream world, but also in uh, near-death experiences. But of course, as near-death experiences will tell you, in that mode of understanding, that mode of experience, it's much more real uh, in 50% or so of the accounts than the world we have here. Mm. And that's the thing that shocked me no end. Uh, and of course, we can actually find the roots for some of that understanding in modern studies of psychedelic drug experiences where you use functional MRI and magnetoencephalography to assess the function of the brain on people who are under the influence of such drugs. The first paper I know of that, that addressed that was from Robin Carhart Harris and others, Imperial College of London, in 2012. 
and they looked at psilocybin. Mm. And the thing that shocked them was they found that, in fact, your brain, on the, under the influence of that drug, the whole brain goes dark. There's no part of the brain that they're measuring that actually shows an increase in activity. Hmm. And not only that, but if you use a visual analog scale to assess the kind of profound depth and extent of the transcendental nature of conscious experience, like being liberated from time, a sense of oneness with the universe, of seeing the future, all of these incredible things that can happen under the influence of those drugs— and you use a visual analog scale, you find that the people with the most extraordinary experiences have the greatest shutting down of the brain itself. Huh. So it, it dispels the myth that the brain is creating consciousness and supports the position that Karen and I argue in living in a mindful universe that consciousness is fundamental and that the brain is a filter that, that actually we're conscious in spite of our brain. It's very busy reducing uh, conscious input down to this tiny little trickle that we assume to be ourself and this notion of here and now. Um, in fact, a, a, a friend of mine, Dr. Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E, wrote a beautiful book called Dark Night, Early Dawn. Uh, I think it came out about 15 years or so ago. And in that book, he, um, he actually compares head-to-head his use with high-dose LSD for a very intentional spiritual uh, journey uh, which he used in multiple sessions, and he compares it with some of his work using differential frequency sound in the form of binaural beats, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a version of binaural beats that were, from my point of view, nowhere near as powerful as what's available in sacred acoustics. But he comes down to that book supporting the progress that people can make with sound alone mm-hmm. and saying that it's a very favorable, uh, comparable to the, uh, to the psychedelic drugs. And I would just encourage people as much as, um, you know, I, I love that finally those drugs are being investigated. I, I think that psilocybin in particular is showing tremendous promise for treatment of addiction, especially really bad addictions like nicotine, uh, opioids, uh, alcoholism, things like that. Uh, and in a proper therapeutic setting, uh, psilocybin, uh, just one dose, can lead to tremendous benefit in uh, uh, relieving oneself of those kinds of addictions. But I would argue that essentially it's all about the same kind of process. The psychedelic drugs, the differential frequency sounds, prayer, meditation, these are all about getting in touch with the origin of our very conscious awareness. Mm. Near-death experiences will tell you our consciousness converges. We are one with that God force of pure love. Uh, And in fact, we argue that very extensively in living in a mindful universe, which is uh, truly an attempt to bring modern science and spirituality together because they cannot move forward without each other. But the interesting thing is the psychedelic drug studies, and these have been replicated now with other drugs too, LSD, uh, DMT, the active principle in dimethyltryptamine, and they're finding the same over and over. The brain goes dark. For those of you who want to believe that the brain is creating all this, no. It's the brain getting out of the way that is enabling such robust uh, experiences of conscious awareness. And this is also the way we address non-local consciousness. Uh, For example, binaural beats were first uh, seen to have significant uh, impact on conscious states back in the 20th century uh, with work, uh, for example, with out-of-body experiences, uh, where people found binaural beats could enhance uh, out-of-body experiences. Likewise, with remote viewing, Mm -hmm. remote viewing or the psychic spy program, which has been proven beyond any reasonable doubt by statisticians and scientists who have investigated it. 
Uh, and yet the conventional scientific world still doubts the reality of remote viewing, and yet it's an established fact. Uh, when you combine the science of uh, this emerging understanding of non-local consciousness uh, with uh, notions of the one mind and the fact that lessons from quantum physics and from neuroscience of consciousness all lead us into this much bigger understanding of relationship of brain-mind and of the nature of consciousness, you start to realize where all this is headed. And it's very empowering indeed, not only to our civilization, but to the individual who chooses to meditate, to go within and use centering prayer, get in touch with that primordial mind and start to really develop far beyond placebo effect. Uh, you know, placebo effect is the modern medical mm -hmm. uh, establishment acknowledgement that beliefs have tremendous power in healing. Uh, and yet uh, I don't think we've, we've yet really reached the true uh, power when you start to realize that there are cases where people's cancers, uh, severe infections, congenital deformities, things like that, uh, have all been alleviated through the power of belief alone, that mind over matter operates uh, very strongly in the world of our health. Um, and in fact, uh, also the whole rest of our emerging reality, uh, likewise, depends heavily on our mind view. And one of the things Karen and I try and teach in our workshops is going within and altering that internal world uh, is a great way of modulating and influencing the external world, especially as you realize it's never been anything other than the supreme illusion of it all being an internal world. I'm curious, when you you mention this sort of oneness uh, and uh, you talk about, I'm curious, the, the oneness connection with the love that you talk about, with the non-local consciousness, I think what, I think what trips people up if if they get tripped up it's 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 this idea that i'm me i am a self i know my experience and i am a singular existing being separate from every other existing being exactly so i think i think that they get lost of especially if they haven't had an experience like you have had in this idea of what does that even mean in the in 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 how can I understand it when I've only seen it through this pinhole of my own experience? And how, how do you sort of overcome that bridge when sort of connecting with people who, who have that difficulty? Well, here's, here's an example. I believe that we are essentially slave to that linguistic brain. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's about that big, you know, it's no bigger than the tip of your thumb right here in my dominant temporal lobe is my Wernicke's area. That's where, all of those associations, everything you've ever learned in language about objects, their relationships, every bit of it is put together there. Uh, and what I submit is if, if you can disable that little linguistic brain or put it offline or put it in timeout like an impish teenager, I love how in his book, uh, The Untethered Soul, Michael Singer calls that uh, linguistic brain, the voice in your head, he calls it the annoying roommate. Uh. Keep that in mind. That's what it is. It calls itself dominant. So we call this the dominant hemisphere because that's where my language lives. Right. But look what happens when it disappears. Perfect example of, of that linguistic center disappearing is Jill Bolte Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight. Mm. She was a neuroanatomist working at Harvard Medical School, Mount Auburn Hospital. Uh, she had a, a, a hemorrhage of a small vascular malformation right there in Wernicke's area. Uh, that ruptured and, and destroyed her linguistic center. 
She gives a beautiful TED Talk. I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen her TED Talk or read her book, you know, My Stroke of Insights, a beautiful story of what happens when your linguistic center gets temporarily taken offline. Uh, now, for her, that temporary was several years because it took her years to recover from her stroke and write her book. Wow. But the reality is what she experienced in the moments of that, that rupture and the destruction of her linguistic center was she start, her sense of self went outward. She was sitting in a chair at a desk, and she started becoming one with the desk, the chair, the rug, the room, the trees outside the window. She became one with all of it. And, and she did all that with an evolving sense of profound love and connectedness of all that is. This was simply by getting her linguistic brain out of the way. Uh, and and uh, what I will tell you is we do a similar thing when Karen and I go around. We give our meditation play shops using sacred acoustics to help people get into very profound states of conscious awareness. And one of the first steps is helping them realize that that little voice in the head, the voice of your ego, essentially, uh, although, yes, we use that same voice for conveying uh, logical, rational ideas, concepts with fellow human beings. But remember, that language is very, very limited. It, it's built up mainly to describe events in this physical world, and it really has no place trying to describe these extraordinary journeys into the realm of ideals, into the, the world of the mental, uh, you know, in the, into the origin of all this. Uh, but I think Jill Bolte-Taylor's story is a beautiful lesson. Uh, in fact, when I read that, which was in a few months after my coma and I was trying to put everything together, it was very illuminating to me, especially because— at the same time as she was describing this expansion of boundaries of self out and out and out into the world to include everything she could perceive, I was very busy reading a lot of books on quantum physics trying to understand the collapse of the wave function. So, mm. in fact, everything I was reading was taking me inward and the boundaries of self and mind and understanding. I was going <coughs> along visual pathways in the brain, the various nuclei, what was happening in the brain cells, occipital cortex, how were these various images, how were things that I heard and then other thoughts and awareness, how was all of this being combined into this sense of oneness? And for me, that notion of collapse of the wave function was something that never happened anywhere in physical space. But, but the more you trace the pathways down deep into mind, the more you realize that every bit of that awareness was uh, the stuff of the universe and that I was under this very illusory sense of self. Uh, and in many ways, Jill Bolte-Taylor and I were arriving at the same conclusion, but by going opposite directions. Mm -hmm. I was going within, she was going without, but they were both pointing to the same answer, which is our conscious awareness is one with the universe. We have this sense of separation uh, because in our whole life, you know, we've been building up this model uh, of being uh, a being that has, has a brain that uh, helps us to interpret all this stuff. We can measure and kind of feel and sense the, uh, the physical world around us. <coughs> so we start thinking of ourselves as separate. And that, that's enough for the casual observer. But the problem is so many people have had experiences of intuition, uh, of knowing something. For example, um, those who read Proof of Heaven will realize I was adopted. Uh, I finally met my birth mother about a year before my coma. We had spent a bunch of time together at various family retreats and everything, uh, my adoptive family, getting to know my birth family and all of this. It was uh, wonderful. But I'd then gone several months without seeing her or talking with her, uh, and that was in November 2010. 
And she had been on a business trip. And the day I went to coma, uh, which was November 10th of 2008, she returned with my birth father from that business trip. And she was overwhelmed with the sense she had to call me, that something was wrong and she had to find out what it was. But when she called, she found out I'd been taken to the ER that morning, seizing and in coma, and had a deadly bacterial meningitis. So her connection with me was enough for her to know just intuitively that she had to reach out. Now, there are millions of stories like that out in this world of people who have had an intuitive connection. Uh, telepathy is well described, for example, in, uh, in Identical Twins. Uh, mm. uh, G, uh, the, uh, Leon de Playfair wrote a beautiful book on telepathy and twins, uh, basically defining that about 20% of identical twins have strong telepathic experiences where, for example, one of them might touch a hot stove and the other one a thousand miles away develops a blister and feels pain. Yeah. So they can have a very tight kind of mental connection of perception and of thinking and of you know, challenges in this world. But it's also true for others. Uh, my birth mother and me obviously have some genetic connection, and that seems to enhance telepathic experience. But romantically involved couples who have no genetic overlap mm -hmm. can similarly have strong uh, kind of uh, telepathic experiences. So this is all about paying a little more attention to our awareness of possibilities. Likewise, I would say after-death communications. Uh, probably about 60% of Americans have had some form of an after-death communication that led them to actually uh, address the, the real possibility that their loved one is still with them. Uh, you know, most people uh, will have that kind of experience. They'll say, well, no, it can't be because my culture tells me that when we die, that's the end of our soul. So my loved one can't be there. And that's why they often, <clears throat> many people will then defer to uh, a psychic medium. Uh, and psychic mediums, of course, before my coma, I thought all psychic mediums are frauds. I now know that's complete rubbish, that in fact there are a lot of psychic mediums who are very, very good. And what mm. most of them will tell you is all of us have this capability. But unfortunately, we don't even trust ourselves enough to believe that our perception of a communication with a loved one who's left the physical plane can be real. That's why if we hear it from a psychic medium who has no way of knowing that right. kind of information that only a loved one would know, then we tend to more, be more likely to believe it. And there are a lot of those mediums around. If you want to learn more, go to winbridge.org. They're into the scientific assessment of mediums through a quintuply blinded uh, protocol. That's something else we talk about a lot in living in a mindful universe. So it's really just, you know, learning that our beliefs are very falsely limiting, especially the beliefs from our materialist science and our materialist uh, world, uh, which uh, can be horribly misleading. And this is why opening our beliefs to much greater possibilities and then exploring it for ourselves. Explore telepathy. Try remote viewing. Uh, do this with a friend. You know, meditation with a friend can be very empowering. You have common experiences, even though you're doing them at a distance, uh, that can be very uh, affirming of that psychic connection. So it's really about opening our minds and exploring more actively, uh, you know, review the science. There's plenty of science supporting the reality of telepathy, of precognition, that we can know the future, of remote viewing, which is, uh, you know, you'd have to be a damn fool to have read the, uh, the scientific evidence for remote viewing and come away saying it, it's not real. Um, but there are damn fools in this world. <laughs> um, so. have, you, uh, have you read Annie Jacobson's book, Phenomena, about uh, the, the DARPA program? She talks about some remote viewing stuff in that book that 
because I'm a skeptic about this stuff in general. And when I read that, I just thought, I, I, I don't even know how I would begin to argue with that this is, this is not real. Like if I'm sitting here saying, do I think it's real or not? Before I read that, I would have thought there's no way that's real. And then after I read that, I just think, well, sure, it's obviously real, but now I don't know what to do with my brain because it sort of implodes everything, you know? Well, that, that I, I would say is a good reason. As I discovered about two years after awakening from my coma, I, I had read more than 100 books by then. I was really trying to figure this out. And, and I came to the very concrete realization uh, and I can't believe it took me about two years to get to it. But that if I wanted to really understand in depth uh, all the nature of the phenomena of what I'd experienced deep in coma, I had to actively explore consciousness. And uh, in other words, I had to meditate or mm. start uh, invoking, uh, you know, centering prayer. I had to really start to do that. Uh, and that has been a tremendous boon in my journey. I now meditate an hour to a day. Uh, I use sacred acoustics. It's a very powerful tool uh, by addressing that lower brainstem circuit and basically hijacking our, our conscious awareness at a very primitive level and setting our awareness free. Uh, it's interesting, though, you don't think your way to knowing this. See, we're so used to that. And you can bet as a Harvard neurosurgeon, I was mm -hmm. used to thinking my way to the answer. But that's not really the pathway here. It, it helps to have a worldview and a kind of mindset from your reading and from uh, conversations uh, from lectures, DVDs, what have you, um, to help you put all this together into a bigger picture. But at the end of the day, the only way to really know it is to explore it yourself. And that's why tools like sacred acoustics, I believe, are so uh, uh, empowering. They really, uh, we, uh, if you go to sacredacoustics.com, look at the uh, uh, testimonials on, on Karen Newell's website. Uh, I mean, there are just some amazing stories from people about uh, what they've been able to glean from this, this kind of technique. And essentially, it is opening our mind, putting that little voice of the ego and the voice of the rational, logical mind into timeout mm. and allowing the universe to show us what we need to know. I mean, there, there are many great philosophers, scientists, musicians, artists who throughout history have learned to kind of put that little thinking mind, the little monkey mind into timeout, like Albert Einstein used to drift around in a sailboat, just staring up into the sky. He's the one who said, knowledge is nothing. Imagination is everything. And that's where he came up with such tremendous insights uh, to apply to physics in this world, was uh, his uh, rich imagination, his uh, creative force of mind. Uh, and that is not something you're using your linguistic brain to work yourself to. Likewise, I would say um, uh, Thomas Alva Edison, he, had, he was the biggest inventor in American history. He was the founder of GE uh, with more than 100 uh, patents to his name. Um, and he would hold weights in his hands, and as the weights fell when he was very sleepy, um, the weights would fall and it would wake him up. And he'd do that two or three times in these little micronaps, those little journeys into the hypnagogic space between awake and asleep would give him creative inspiration. Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, the famous mm -hmm. uh, Scottish uh, novelist, musician, and poet, uh, had a similar technique for getting into this hypnagogic state, 
which will give him tremendous resources for his creative inspiration. Salvador Dali, mm -hmm. Beethoven, Mozart, others, they had ways of getting into the space where they were bypassing that little linguistic brain and its rational, logical breadcrumbs leading to an answer and actually gleaning information directly from that primordial mind, that, that universe at large. And that's what I believe all of us can do. Uh, through meditation, a centering prayer, through a daily uh, practice of, of getting to know those territories and going within. Uh, I mean, it's been a tremendous boon in my life, and uh, I think it's contributed tremendously to my health and my understanding, and certainly to insights about understanding consciousness. Uh, you just can't trade the power of accessing that uh, primordial mind uh, by going within and learning to silence that little right. uh, ego voice, the monkey mind in our head. So. I think the another question that comes up uh, when just sort of like I think once you get once I get into the finer details I'm I'm I grasp them a bit better but I think the in the broader sense so you talk about the non-local thing it, and you talk about it's not it can't be possibly happening in the brain because your brain was essentially offline or filled with pus or you know obviously not working and I think this is – well, I know this is a dumb question, but I'm sure you get a lot. So I'm curious as to how you – if it's not happening in the brain, where is it happening? However, your version of answering that works because I know it's not like, well, it's happening in that cabinet or something like that. It's like well, – yeah. For one thing, it's important to realize that space and time, um, mass and – they're, they're all really related to consciousness itself. Fundamentally – they all emerge out of consciousness itself. So there, there's no kind of dumb material world out there going by uh, its own rules, even though, yes, there is a consensus reality within consciousness that we share, but we're really using the one mind to experience it. Mm. Uh, there's a beautiful book that, that really expands on this kind of notion of one mind that I can highly recommend. It's by a good friend of ours, uh, Dr. Larry Dossie. And it's called, conveniently enough, One Mind. Uh, he was an identical twin, uh, and so he noticed a lot of those kind of telepathic things that would happen where he and his twin would um, have some kind of shared experiences of sorts. And that's what led him into a notion of, well, if the brain's not creating it, and if my mind is not local right here, you know, where is it and yeah. what is it? Uh, and that book is a very good uh, kind of extrapolation of all that. He talks not just about humans, but about uh, animals and how many, often the flocks of birds, schools of fish, uh, often seem to be functioning as if guided by one mind. Yeah. And th there's a lot more evidence. It, it really gets huge, especially when you kind of look at the consilience uh, of things like quantum physics and how the founding fathers of that field have talked about one mind. Mm -hmm. And that was another thing. Erwin Schrodinger uh, wrote, a, wrote a beautiful uh, little booklet about life. Uh, and uh, mind, and uh, it goes a long way towards pointing out to how our materialistic explanations just fail. You've got to get to a deeper level of understanding, and that level of understanding is from the level of mind. And in fact, the quantum physics world uh, has gotten to be quite comfortable with that notion over many decades of experimentation. Um, for example, if you go to uh, uh, the journal Nature, uh, 2005, Rich Con Henry, the head of astrophysics at Johns Hopkins University, wrote a one-page essay called The Mental Universe. And he makes it very clear, and believe me, he is no slouch in cosmology and modern quantum physics, 
but he makes it very clear that the notions emerging from quantum physics uh, point to a top-down uh, organizational principle um, that is not the bottom-up, which, mm. you know, before my coma, the, the little bit I knew about quantum physics, I was kind of struggling with understanding that bottom-up causation that so many materialists uh, work with. But if you look at the writings of George F.R. Ellis, he's a South African mathematician who's written extensively about top-down influences in setting uh, quantum physics, in, in uh, you know, the measurement paradox. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially, David Baum was, was pointing out similar principles in his interpretation of the measurement paradox about a mental guiding wave or pilot wave. And really what we're coming to see is that all of this is on target to show the power of the mental over the physical. And, you know, essentially, we've been admitting this for six decades in medicine, because what is the gold standard in medicine? It's the placebo-controlled trial. Mm -hmm. What does placebo effect show us more than anything? It's the admission by the medical scientific profession that beliefs can guide our healing and health. And when you realize that that uh, placebo is not just giving somebody a sugar pill and getting rid of a headache. But, for example, if you go to noetic.org, the Institute of Noetic Sciences website, put in the search term spontaneous remission, and you will uncover a book uh, that they published in the mid-'90s. It's out of press now, but it's fully available for download on their website. Uh, more than 3,500 cases of extraordinary healing, people healing cancers, advanced infections, congenital deformities, uh, degenerative illnesses, what have you, and uh, all through the power of belief. And mm. uh, it's really astonishing when you realize just how powerful this can be. And so really, the mental universe is just the quantum physicist's way of admitting what those in medicine have known at a deep level, even though we, we don't admit it, because I promise you medical uh, education in medical schools and nursing schools still tends to be heavily materialistic and uh, kind of molecular focused. Mm -hmm. But the big reality is medical schools now, probably 70% of them, uh, have courses in spirituality huh. uh, compared to 30 years ago when basically none of them did. So uh, we're making big progress. Uh, and really, this is what our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is all about, is how science and spirituality neither gets out of here without the other. Right. And this is all about uh, admission within the scientific community uh, that we're spiritual beings in a spiritual universe. This, the power of mind is absolutely astonishing, and that is what will rule the day. But the important corollary of that is that we're sharing one mind. We're all in this together. Just like near-death experiencers, the most fundamental lesson they will tell you no matter what their background religious beliefs, where they come from, what continent they were on when it happened, or what millennium they lived in, is that we're bound together through the force of love. And that God force is all permeated. And it is not uh, as if there's a countervening force of darkness and evil, although the apparent darkness and evil, I would say, are just the absence of the light and love of understanding of this human awakening that is coming to us now. I'm curious, before we wrap up, just last question really is, and it might, it's, it's a pretty big question, but I, I, I feel like, I mean, even the title of the book, Proof of Heaven, so much of it, to, especially to someone who, who, who naturally is re religious-minded, which I'm, I'm not, but I do think that someone with a religious mind comes to Proof of Heaven and wants to have that verified, but at the same time, you know, 
there's there are Christians, there are Muslims, there are so many different people coming at from different faiths to a story like this. And I think I would love to hear you talk just about how you think this affects sort of the religious framework of one's thinking, if one thinks that way. Okay. Well, one thing that was very clear to me in the first few years after my coma, I started giving talks about my experience uh, out in the public. And I would make DVDs of these talks and I would send them around to friends and they got circulated. And I started hearing back from people. Uh, I would hear back from, um, from Christian mystics and I would hear from Kabbalists, Jewish mystics. Mm. I would hear from Sufis, Islamic mystics. I would hear from those of the Baha'i faith. I would hear uh, from atheists and, and, and skeptics who would have their own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would hear from Hindus and from Zoroastrians. And what they would tell me is that the journey I described in Proof of Heaven and the kind of power and resonance of it was completely in alignment with their deepest meditative beliefs about the reality of the universe. Hmm. And to me, it was a very simple uh, lesson that, in fact, the core beliefs of, of the prophets and mystics who brought us our greatest religious systems converge uh, into a teaching that modern indie ears would say is, is pretty damn obvious. Hmm. And that is of our connection through love and oneness that we're here to take care of each other. That that force of creation and of evolution in the universe, that God force, is one of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and acceptance. This is all about love. And uh, that's an ancient lesson. And yet that was at the very core of it all. And it showed me how we're all converging, especially through the tip of the spear of the NDE experiences, which levels the ground and shows us we're all equal in this together. But we're all bound together through that force. And in fact, what you actually see in religious dogma is a, a kind of a movement away from those original teachings of oneness, love and mercy. Uh, that Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, and others talked about Mm. uh, into this crazy kind of conflicted world where they're arguing over the dogma. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, forget about all that. Go within, centering prayer, you know, just let go of the dogma. The dogma is an ancient story that has a lot of truth to it, but if you take it literally, it can be extremely confusing. Mm. Um, Spirituality does not have to depend on religious faith, although from my point of view, we don't need a new religion. All we need is for um, for those who uh, participate in religions to deep, dig deep down into the core uh, teachings of the prophets, which are universally of our togetherness, that there is no conflict. We are not here to kill others or to uh, uh, harm others. In fact, near-death experiences will tell you from that life review, you feel the brunt of that in the life review. You'll feel it what you did to others. So best to keep a clean slate, love, compassion, forgiveness, because if you hurt others, you're truly hurting yourself, and that will become very apparent uh, at the time of that life review, if not early. Mm. So this is really about growing into that sense of oneness and spirituality. I think people can use religion as long as they don't get too bogged down, especially in the conflicted teachings of those who would try and foment uh, you, you know, conflict and power mongering over human beings, which unfortunately is what hum- what um, religions have done throughout this world. Yeah. Uh, but this is really, and I think the reason it's going to be different this time is because science offers us a tremendous road towards objective, verifiable community knowledge that we can believe in. 
And when you realize that most of those who promote science in the current era, especially in the media, a lot of uh, science journalists and all, they're, they're basically, they're, they're not scientifically minded, they're scientistically minded. Hmm. Scientism is a faith-based religion mm. that believes that materialist science is the only pathway to truth. And they tend to ignore those horrific edges, like in quantum physics, the obvious that, that mind is fundamental. Uh, or, for example, in studies of psychedelic drugs, where over and over again we find that the brain in a patient on psilocybin, LSD, or DMT goes dark. The activity in it is suppressed by the drug. There's no part of the brain that's more active creating those uh, psychedelic experiences. It's happening because the brain is getting out of the way. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, uh, even some of the scientists who participated in those studies don't understand the findings that they are publishing. It's, mm -hmm. it's astonishing how uh, by having such a limited mind view, worldview, they really can't see it. Mm -hmm. It's like colorblindness. You know, people who are... Um, are red, green, colorblind, uh, you know, they're going to have trouble see seeing sure. the colors properly that the rest of us can see. Well, likewise, for a materialist scientist, now I will tell you, and you, you know, early in the conversation this came up, but I'm pointing out as a former materialist scientist who mm -hmm. thought that was the only way to understand anything, I now realize it's a pathway to nowhere. Mm -hmm. But remember that the science that we've uncovered in, in physics and chemistry and biology, every bit of that, can be greatly expanded through this uh, new science that shows the primacy of consciousness to give us tremendous influence over this world. And that's the revolution that I think we're all looking forward to. That's great. And my last, my very, very last question, I promise if you have time, I, 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 I'm curious if you have an opinion or a take on this being, this experience that you've had and that other people have had. What, why do you believe it is so hidden from everyday experience that is why do you think it takes something like near death a drug a deep meditation something like this to to experience it well i, I would say that basically it's because consciousness that self-awareness of the universe uh is a very very profound uh mystery um and the the kind of surface level um appearances we get in many ways support our being, uh, you know, an animal living on the surface of Earth in a predator-prey kind of dance. Um, so that, uh, in fact, uh, you know, I, I would say for growth of the soul, uh, it's kind of important to buy into that illusion. It's not really an illusion, but it's, it's not as it appears. You know, this physical world around us is a maya. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it's a projection out of consciousness. Um, and, of course, it seems very real to us. And that gives us skin in the game, and that's why the emotional buy-in is so important. But that's why it's um, really seen the kind of growth that comes when we're not only enslaved as the little ego mind, thinking that our thoughts and this little experience in this body is our only existence, but we get glimpses of more. Uh, we get glimpses uh, that show us that we're more than that in mm. the dream world and in, uh, just in our kind of daily thinking and all. And then when we explore it consciously, we find that we have much more power over it. But I think part of it is that there's, there's a system that I would call program forgetting. Uh, we know that dreaming is very important. Many animals way down the evolutionary chain dream and sleep. You have to sleep to dream. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly why, 
But that dreaming is a crucial part of consciousness and of being of being in this world. Uh, and, and yet we come back to uh, this world and we tend to forget our dreams mm-hmm. unless we're very good at lucid dreaming and remembering them. Most of us, you know, did I have a dream or not? It felt like it. Before you know it, it's gone. Right. Well, likewise, when you look at um, uh, past life memories in children and the scientists who have studied them, 2,500 cases at UVA over the last five or six decades, they will tell you you have to harvest those memories by age five or six or seven, because after that, the memories tend to be covered over. Mm. Um, And what I'm pointing out here is, uh, in addition to our concepts of the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, the unconscious mind plays a tremendous role, as modern psychologists have come to demonstrate. But there are also kind of islands of knowledge that seem to be um, forbidden in certain states of conscious awareness. So our knowledge of the dream world, our knowledge of between lives. Mm. Those memories are suppressed. And I think that is part of the whole growth process, this whole evolution of consciousness and, and learning from these experiences and coming in here with skin in the game, but then buying into the materialist model that I just had this incarnation. That's all there is to it. I think it's a complex blend of kind of the islands of, of information that are available to us at various times in our journey as souls of understanding. And that's where I would think that program forgetting plays a role and why all of this can seem so confusing, especially when we're used to thinking our way to the answer, thinking that our memory is quite good, that it'll remember the things of our experience. And if we didn't experience it, we don't remember it. Well, that's not necessarily true. People have had profound memories of an NDE that they didn't know when they came back from the NDE, but they only uh, remembered much later, either through hypnosis, Mm. through meditation, or even through having a second NDE when the memories of the first one ah. came before. So we, we like to think that we remember everything that we remember and mm. that there would be no reason that higher consciousness would block certain pieces of memory from us. But in fact, it's a routine part of the process. Whether you're looking at dreams or past life memories in children, there is a program for getting that is part of allowing us to have the most emotional buy-in to learn the lessons that we're here to learn and teach. Well, I mean, this is all so fascinating. And I mean, I could go on and on for hours. But you know, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Alexander. And if there's anything else you want to say to the audience before I let you go, um, go for it. If not, yeah, yeah, I would like to say one very important thing. And that is no soul left behind. Every single one of you is crucial in this process of the evolution of consciousness. We're all playing a role. Uh, so this is all about redeveloping a very rich sense of love, meaning, and purpose that the universe has for each and every one of us. Uh, our modern world with our false sense of separation from scientific materialism can lead to a lot of despair. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have a crisis in our country today. The actuarial survival curves, which have been going up for a century, ever yeah. since the end of World War I, are now taking a dip again. Yeah. And that is all due to the spiritual vacuum in our, uh, in our world, in this false sense of separation. And so the most important thing I can do in trying to share with this world is to help people get on board with that. And for people who want absolutely for free, go to ebonalexander.com. There's a little banner that wiggles in your face, your 33-day journey into the uh, heart of consciousness. Put in your first name and an email address, and you're off on 33 days. All the main concepts from the book Living in a Mindful Universe, every bit of it for free. So uh, we really want to involve everybody. So share that with your friends. No soul left behind. 
Uh, this is a, a, an awakening and revolution for the common man, for each and every one of us, uh, no longer to be beholden to falsely accumulated centers of power uh, and wealth in this universe that suppress uh, the liberation and freedom of the individual soul. That's what this is all, all about. Well, again, thank you so much, Dr. Alexander, and I appreciate your time, and you have a great day. Thanks for having me on. Great talking with you. Hope to talk again soon.